The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, we have been going through the book of Revelation um, in, in these past few weeks. Uh, we do that here at Sacred City about 95% of the time. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through uh, entire books of the Bible. Uh, we, um, we let God set the agenda for our church. I don't get to stand up here and pick out my favorite Bible verses and just let my hobby horses rip all day long. We're, we're going to the scriptures and God is telling us exactly what we need to hear. And so strange that in his sovereignty, there's always a timely word for us. He meets us exactly where we need to be met each week. And, and maybe you feel like that right now. You feel that in your soul. Man, I just, just really want the Lord to show up and meet me where you're at today. And I, can, I resonate with that. And I believe the Lord is faithful to do just that. But when you hear that we're in the book of Revelation, uh, you probably wonder, how is this going to be relevant to me in real life? 
Right? Doesn't Revelation have to do with the end of the world and the destruction of humanity and all this, all this chaos and stuff? That stuff seems pretty dramatic, doesn't it? Go over the top even. And Revelation tends to have this polarizing effect. Some people hear about Revelation and they're intimidated by it. They've heard the stories of, of the weird and confusing, sometimes even bloody stories that are told. And, and there's actually quite a bit of controversy in here. So even if we do go through it, even if I do read it, I don't even know how to comprehend some of the stuff that's going on. So we, we push it away. We don't really want anything to do with it. But on the other side, uh, for lack of better term, there are all kinds of spiritual weirdos that just gravitate toward it. Right, they they like, oh, Revelation, I love this. Let me get my calculator out. I'm gonna look at, I'm gonna do a survey of all the times and everything that's going on in current events and try to draw a one-for-one correlation between the things that are happening in real time and the end of the world. Now, I think two general rules for life, good rules for life is one, don't be a weirdo. And two, don't be a coward. Right? And, and it's so strange that when you do a survey of the church, Christians tend to gravitate towards both of these, right? right? You, you probably know, even before you came to faith, you knew Christians who were like, that dude is weird. Right? You knew it. Or, or you know the Christians who maybe, you know they're Christians, but they never talk about their faith. Right? They sort of cower in fear. They're ashamed of, of, their, of their faith, and they're, they're just bottled up. Yet when we give ourselves to the study and reading Revelation, when we give ourselves to seeking out what God really intends to communicate to his people, what happens is we become more grounded in reality. We're not weirdos. We become grounded in reality and we become more courageous in our faith and our lives. And what happens Church, what happens when we study the book of Revelation? We come alive. But that doesn't mean that the book of Re- Revelation is easy to understand. It's challenging. In fact, it's probably one of the most complicated books to, to navigate. Now, that's for a couple of reasons, but even just think of that. Any, everything that's challenging, everything that has, a, has a, a flare of difficulty is usually worth doing. Or you can flip that. Everything worth doing usually has a flare of difficulty. You think of it in parenting. You think about it in marriage. You think about if you're, if you're passionate about your career. Right? There's gonna be some difficulty laced in there. And there's a few things that make studying Revelation especially tough. First of all, it's a book that is a mix of three different genres of literature. It's, each genre has its own way of understanding, of unpacking, unpacking of it's a, a special lens to look through. And so it's tough specifically to look at a passage and wonder, which lens do I need to look at this through? We're talking about uh, uh, an epistle. It's easy if you go to the New Testament and you read uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and go through all of the, the letters that have been written to the churches. Those are pretty easy to understand because it's do this, don't do that. Here, here's what you should do in life because of what Christ has done. It's pretty straightforward stuff. And there's a little bit of that here in the book of Revelation, but there's also uh, uh, some prophecy 
It's making a proclamation of what's true. There's, there's even some sort of future orientation to it, which we call apocalyptic literature. That, that an apocalyptic literature is full of images and, and stories and angels and creatures. This, this cosmic scene. And a lot of times it's really, really confusing. And so there's, there's these different pieces of literature that we're trying to, na- genres of, of literature we're trying to navigate. Second of all, there's a lot of detail and foreign concepts. That's, that's part of the apocalyptic literature. Uh, it, it's easy for us to get focused in. In fact, today in our passage, we're gonna see a lamb with, with seven horns and seven eyes. And you're like, what does that even mean? How do we even comprehend it? What's that? How does it even process that? And it's easy to, get, to lose the forest through the trees. We get stuck. And in fact, that's why we're kind of going through this book in big chunks, right? So we don't get sucked into the itty-bitty details and miss the whole beautiful picture God is trying to paint. But the third reason why Revelation can be challenging is because it's chocked full of Old Testament allusions and references, that whenever John is writing, it's almost every time we hear something, it, it happens a ton in this specific chapter that we're in today, he invokes some sort of backstory that's rooted in the Old Testament story. And when you think about it, when you think of God telling a story of redemption, God telling the story of creation, God telling the story of the universe, he starts at the beginning in Genesis. He works his way through the Old Testament. New Testament picks up, and we'll kind of get into this stuff. But Revelation is really the capstone. It's, it's what caps off everything, every piece of the story that God is telling is, is sort of summed up here in the book of Revelation. In fact, a, a correct understanding of Revelation, and in fact, even, even the New Testament, it's impossible to do without some sort of Old Testament framework. And we're in a time right now where there's a lot of people who want to toss out the Old Testament. They just want to focus on the New Testament, the the, the parts of the Bible that's really easy to understand for the most part. But that's impossible for us to do, church. If we do that, that would be the equivalent of of us uh, eliminating the first six books of the Harry Potter series and only having the seventh book. And if you do that, you have no idea what's going on. God has unveiled his story, his plan of redemption to his people bit by bit. He does this as time elapses throughout history. There's a, what, what scholars call a, pro- a progressive revelation. In fact, when you think of it, that's actually how learning works. In biology class, you don't, you don't just get a huge information dump all at once and then you know everything. No, you start by learning out little by little. It starts in childhood, right? You start by learning how to distinguish a cat from a cow. Then you get into school and they start telling you this concept of life cycles and how life works. And then you get into high school and you're, you're in microbiology and then get into your senior year or college and you're studying microbiology. That's how biology works. There's this progressive understanding. And this is similar to how God's revelation works understanding the whole Bible, the whole story. It works out bits at a time. And, and, and where the story starts is in Genesis chapter one. The, the camera pans up right in the middle of this garden. Perfection. God has created everything good and untainted. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's robust. It's paradise. It's perfection. 
This would be a place where the cynics and the complainers in the room would have a really hard time living because there's nothing here to complain about. Humans living in close relationship with God. We're told that Adam and Eve would take walks with God in the cool of the day. Unrestricted access. And they had this really good relationship with one another. Creation. They found a way to coexist with the, the environment that they lived in. The animals were non-threatening to them. The weather was always 72 degrees and sunny. And a little bit of rain so the plants could, you know, but just here and there. And it would be this way as long as Adam and Eve would obey the one rule, only, only one rule God had for Adam and Eve to obey, to maintain this paradise. And when we talk about paradise, it's really hard for us to get our minds around. It's, it's really, really hard to paint a picture of paradise we might be familiar with some of the elements of it, right? We say, oh, of course, there's no pain, there's no fear, there's no tears. Death isn't a thing. We're joyful, it's beautiful, there's abundance everywhere. But it's really hard to envision it, to imagine it, let alone get excited about it, because quite frankly, it sounds fairy tale ish. And I think. This is just a generalization, but the closest that we get to paradise in this life is some sort of image of being on a secluded beach, the white sand, the, the beautiful blue waves crashing up gently on the shore. There's no work, there's no drama, unlimited margaritas. And you're sitting there and you're just basking in this. But even then, even in that vision that we have of paradise, or maybe you have a different sort of paradise, but even then, you know this vacation will eventually come to an end. And then it's coming back to the real world, the real world of hard knocks, where work is hard and agitating, and people can be even worse running your kids to and fro, keeping up with their activities, making dollars stretch, paying your taxes, shoveling snow. It all comes back. Or if, or if beach life is retirement, and you're like, well, this is my permanent state for the rest of life, the only thing that's waiting you, the next phase of life, is inside of a wooden box. See, in the reality of our life is pain and death and fear, anxiety, tears, heartbreak, and these things are pressing in on all sides. There's no escape. Even in the most serene locations can't give us an adequate sense of what this, this paradise, what Eden was like for Adam and Eve. And that's because by Genesis chapter three, we're only three chapters into the book of the Bible at this point, the glory, the breadth, the beauty of paradise was lost when Adam and Eve broke the one rule God laid out for them. And you think, well, you know, if you know the story, they, they ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? How, how bad could it be to eat a piece of a fruit? But we don't realize is in that one bite, they forfeited everything. 
They forfeited the tranquility of paradise, the shalom. That's the that's Hebrew word for this harmony of how all things work together in this beautiful and, and vibrant way. It was interrupted. The concept of paradise becomes a memory trace. It's gone. Now, it's tempting to look at this story and be upset with Adam and Eve. You just want to shake your fist at him and say, what, what did you guys do? But if it wasn't them, it would have been you. And if it wasn't you, it would have been me. See, the fall from this peak of paradise is long and hard. Things start unraveling. Sin is like poison. It impairs and fractures everything. And it starts with the most important thing, their relationship with God. See, in that one bite of, of that fruit, they lost trust. They lost intimacy with God. From that point on, there were no longer walks in the cool of the day. See, that's because God is holy. It's like a, a, his holiness is like a consuming fire. That sin cannot exist in his presence without facing wrath and judgment. And so it was for the safety of Adam and Eve that God escorts them out of paradise. He says, I'm sorry, guys, but you have to go. And to protect them, he puts this flaming sword over the entrance of paradise. So nobody gets in, nothing gets out. Now this is just the start of the turmoil here. Like that, those are just the external things, right? The relationship with God, or, or I guess we could say spiritual things, the relationship with God. But there's all kinds of other disruption that happens. There's the internal turmoil that now exists within humanity. There's shame and guilt and fear and rage. Those things constantly nag. There's, there's now problems with our emotional health. Our, our mental health now suffers. We might feel spiritually bipolar in light of this separation from God. We have high highs and low lows. There's the sense of being torn between our desires of, of living for what is good and right and perfect, what is righteous, but then also having this desire to move toward what is evil and wicked and depraved. Relationships get messy. We see very quickly in the book of Revelation or in the book of Genesis how marital issues between Adam and Eve, they're pointing the finger, they're blaming each other for this problem. These marital issues escalate into sibling murder. The next generation, Cain kills his brother Abel. And from there, there is this pitting against the peoples. We see this escalating into war. Physically speaking, childbirth brings excruciating pain. Most of our women can attribute to that here. Go look at the kids' ministry downstairs. We get aching feet, and our work becomes burdensome and gives us aching backs. We experience sickness and disease. Your body ages, wrinkles, it's hard to walk. Environmentally, the ground is cursed, work is hard, animals might eat you now, that's a thing. Natural disasters might just destroy your home or anything that you find safety and security in. 
And to cap it all off, now there is an end to life. That was the thing. In the garden, there were two trees. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they would have eaten from the tree of life, life would have extended forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Humans were not meant to die. But now there's an end to life. You get to the end, you die. Which considering all of the ailments, all of the difficulty of living this life, this is a grace in itself that God gives us some sort of reprieve. See what happens in three chapters of the Bible. God's people go from living in paradise to living in the slums at the intersection of misery and futility. I hope you weren't coming to church to get encouraged this morning because this is kind of, it gets kind of heavy here, right? But God looks at this and he sees what's going on. He sees how far the fall has taken his creation and he doesn't just stand back and say, well, I'll let you guys figure it out. God doesn't do that. In the wake of all this mess, God makes a subtle promise to Adam and Eve. He says, one day, and we sang about it today, one day paradise will be restored. He says, Satan, the serpent that came into the garden and tempted you, Satan and all evil will be crushed and eliminated under the bruised heel of one of Eve's children, her children's 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 children. And so all throughout the Old Testament, from, from Genesis all the way up to Micah, where the, the Old Testament ends, God is telling a story about how he plans to bring paradise back to his people or how he plans to bring his people back into paradise. Now, right away, well, not right away, but it's a few chapters in the book of Genesis, God identifies this man named Abraham just chooses him at, at random out of all the people on the earth. Abraham doesn't do anything uh, that's worthy of being selected, but God randomly chooses Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm gonna set my affections on you. I'm gonna put my blessing on you. I'm gonna bless you so you become a blessing. I'm gonna make you great. At this time, Abraham's almost 100 years old. He's got no kids. He's married to a wife who's, I don't know, she's like 90 years old. They got no kids. And God says, I'm gonna make your family huge. I'm gonna make you a powerful people. And I'm gonna give your people a land. I'm gonna, this land, this sort of, it's sort of Eden-esque in the way that he talks about it, this promised land that will be uh, bountiful and you'll have all kinds, land flowing, in Exodus talks about a land flowing with milk and honey, this sort of, this vibrant and, and lush land. And so this promise sort of traces its way throughout all the Old Testament and God sends prophets like Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and these prophets really do two things throughout the Old Testament. First of all, they're reminding God's people of this promise, right? Because part of the fall is you now have memory problems. We so quickly forget how good God is to us or how trustworthy he is or how sweet his promises is and we tend to veer away from that's the story of Israel they're hot and cold with their allegiance to God but the second thing that these prophets do is they they provide us information about how God will accomplish this and it's through the means of this Messiah this promised one this deliverer the rescuer who would come and bring God's people who would make for himself a new people and give them this great land this promised land. 
And so all throughout the Old Testament, you see these promises, the prophets pointing back to these promises and, and providing clarity on what these promises entail. And then we finally come to the New Testament. You know, guys, we're not even into Revelation yet. Whew, I'm getting worked up. Then we come to the New Testament. And, and the first thing that Matthew does, uh, it's the first book of the New Testament, uh, first thing Matthew does is connect the story of the New Testament with what happened in the Old Testament. The genealogy of Jesus Christ begins with going back to Abraham and the promise that God made Abraham. An angel shows up to this virgin girl named Mary and gives her a revelation. She says, hey, uh, uh, you're gonna have God's son. Now this is the part where we celebrate Advent, right? We, we celebrate baby Jesus who came meek and mild, was born into a manger, and all the, all the sweetness and the, you know, like that, the joy of Christmas time. And it's so funny. When, when Jesus comes, I don't know if it's funny, it's interesting. I'm all over the place today. We're, I'm just gonna jump to Luke chapter four real quick. See, Jesus comes, this, this little baby Jesus comes in the manger and he comes and he grows up and he matures and he becomes a man and Jesus is baptized and God says, this is my son who I love and, and all of these affirmations about Jesus being this, this, the, the Messiah and people don't really see it yet. But Jesus comes and he steps in the, in the temple and this is in Luke chapter four. And Jesus came to Nazareth and where he had begun, uh, where he had been brought up and and was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to claim, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you see the imagery here of paradise? And Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And he began to say to them, to them Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's interesting. This is the interesting part of this, that, that Jesus cuts off, right? He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, and he cuts off because the next line, and it's happening mid-verse, he cuts off in the next line of the verses, and the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't say that. Because when Jesus came as that sweet baby Jesus, he didn't come to bring vengeance. He came into the world to save the world, not to judge the world. That, that doesn't come yet, but it will come. See, this is why Advent is also apocalyptic. We, we look back at the baby Jesus in the manger, but we also look forward to the victorious Jesus coming with the clouds. It points to Jesus' future time, or future return. It takes an honest look at the world and says, yeah, this is still not paradise. This is what scholars call the already but not yet. Jesus has already started unrolling paradise, but it is not yet completed. So it's an advent. We remember what Jesus said, that he would come back again, that he would gather his people, that he would judge the world. 
And that one day, every prophecy, every promise would be not just being fulfilled, but would be completely fulfilled. That paradise would once again be a reality for God's people. See, this is what Revelation is all about. This is why Revelation is relevant to us. It's because God is telling us how he's going to make good on all of his promises. That he's going to make a paradise that is incorruptible. At the beginning of Revelation, we see Jesus showing up. John, the apostle John, is on an island of Patmos. He's been exiled. He's most likely been arrested for proclaiming the gospel and doing being faithful to Jesus and proclaiming his glory. And in the middle of a prayer day, the middle of a Sabbath day, Jesus shows up in his ordinary prayer time and pulls back the veil. Jesus gives him a vision. And if you were with us last week, he brings us to the center of the universe where God is seated on his throne where there are 24 elders and four strange creatures that are just belting out worship tunes all day long. And John gets a peek in on this. He sees this vision. And in this vision, God is seated on the throne. He's just radiating glorious light. There's lightning and thunder. It's an overwhelming sense. The whole works are going on here. It had to be sensory overload for John, and he's just probably just sitting there just taking it in, right? You ever seen a kid that like walks into a toy store and just like, wow. John was like that, and all of a sudden he just snaps into what's, what's seated right there on the throne. It's like the kid who locks in on the toy that they really, really want. He, he snaps his eyes to what is in God's hand, and this is, Revelation chapter five, verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, what John is seeing here probably doesn't make a lot of sense to us, right? What's the big deal about a scroll with seven seals? This would have been a piece of parchment with writing on it on the back of the front. And that, those times, they didn't really have books yet. They hadn't been invited, invented. And so the, just a piece of paper that's rolled up. And, and the contents of this scroll is unknown. We see that as we kind of make our way through the story. Now, for us, this probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, what's the big deal with the scroll? But, but in the 21st century, in, in the first century, the Old Testament, or the, golly, the original audience, this would invoke imagery for them. This would have brought their mind to the book of Daniel, um, which the book of Daniel is, I haven't really talked about this, but the book of Daniel is essential for us uh, to understand what's happening in Revelation. In fact, if you think of it, Daniel could be thought of as like a, a, a preview, a trailer for a movie, and Revelation is sort of the feature film. Now, when people think of Daniel, most people think of Lion Den and the Fiery Furnace, but, but really chapters 7 through 12 of Daniel is filled with apocalyptic visions. Daniel gets this, the first impressions or gets a glimpse at to what John is seeing in Revelation. And so in this way, chapters 4 and 5 connects profoundly with what we see in, in Daniel chapter 7. Let me just read uh, a couple verses from it. This is uh, verses 9 and 10. 
as Daniel looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. That's God. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. The throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Or you could say the scroll was opened. See, there's a very similar setting here when we see in Revelation to, to Daniel. John makes it clear that what's about to happen is God is about to issue judgment. He's seated on the judgment seat, and trial is in session. So that's, that's the feeling that this invokes. But what, what exactly is in the scroll? What, what is, is this the equivalent of Santa's naughty and nice list? What, what, what is this? Now, some scholars say that, that this scroll contains the Old Testament. It, it contains future events that are to happen. Some say it's the plan for judgment and, and redemption. And I don't think any of those are, are necessarily wrong I just think that it's incomplete when you isolate those things like that because I believe that what's in the scroll, I feel like that what scripture shows us is in the scroll is all of these things and more. That it's God's will and testament. That it's the inheritance that is intended for God's people. See, the scroll that appears in God's hand bears striking similarities to what a Roman legal document of a will would be like. Now, scholars point this out for us. They say that, that both this scroll that's in God's hand on the, as he sits on, the, sits on the throne and a Roman will would have writing on the front and on the back. That it would have to be witnessed and sealed by seven witnesses. And that only under the proper circumstances could the scroll be opened by a qualified executor of the estate. Now, that, that's so interesting because in Revelation uh, 5 and verse 2, what we see is the call of someone who's worthy. Who's calling, the angel is calling, look, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? He's saying, who's the worthy executor of the, the estate? See, the scroll that's in God's hand is the comprehensive and covenantal promise that paradise will be inherited. And the fulfillment of God's promises, this paradise that are found in both New Testament and Old Testament to reclaim paradise, this happens by two things, okay? Two things happen, two big things happen in order for paradise to be reclaimed. First of all, God's covenant people have to be redeemed. The people that God chooses are not saints on their own. They aren't qualified to inherit these promises on their own. They have to be redeemed. They themselves are sinful. And so something has to happen where they're redeemed, they're preserved, they're protected, they're reclaimed from sin and death. That's the first part. The second part is this. That sin and evil have to be defeated, punished, and destroyed in order for this paradise to be unthreatened for the rest of eternity. 
Those are the two things that happen. Redemption and the defeat of sin and evil in the world. Now, in doing, though, doing these two things, it means that the promise of paradise, this promise of an, an eternal, eternal kingdom connects all the way back again to Daniel, chapter seven. In verse 13, he says, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, which is, by the way, is Jesus' favorite name to use for himself in the Gospels. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And the kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. See, this... This is Old Testament language for paradise. But verse 3, back in Revelation 5, exposes a problem. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. There is no worthy executor of the state to be found. And you would think that, that in that vision, when, when John is standing there in the throne room and he sees these angelic creatures, he sees these elders that are clothed in, in, in white linen with the gold sash and the crowns, you would think surely they could open it, right? Some sort of angelic creature could come in and, and open it up for us, but they can't. Here's why. It's because this promise that God made to, to reclaim paradise was made to mankind. A human had to be the one to open it. Right? And not just any human. Otherwise, this wouldn't re really be a problem. Someone would just say, hey, give me a butter knife and I'll pop these little seals off and we'll be well on our way. See, God intended his promise to come through an obedient people. The promise of paradise existing forever, right? First we see Adam and Eve, right? That, that was going to be the reality. They failed. And then God says, Abraham and your family, I'm gonna make you into a people. I'm gonna turn you into my people. We, we call them Israel. Well, Israel had the same problem. They were hot and cold with God. They'd have a little bit of uh, some spurts of obedience, but most of the time they were disobedience to God and they walked away from him and even Revelation chapters 2 and 3 shows us that the New Testament church God's new people people of the new covenant surely some of them would be capable but Revelation 2 and 3 tells us that they too walk away from God it's through the perfect obedience of a person a specific person. And Old Testament talks about this Messiah. Through this perfect obedience, this person would be morally qualified. They'd be worthy to open up the scroll. Nobody was found morally capable. Then there's still the matter of being capable, physically capable. Are they powerful enough? Do they have the authority? Do they have the dominion? Are they strong enough to conquer sin and death? See, no human 
Not the elders, not the 24 elders standing there, no human living or dead are qualified nor powerful enough to empty, to open the scroll. Listen, and John has the most appropriate response. He starts in with despair. Verse four, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The fulfillment of the promise of paradise is right there at God's fingertips and nobody can open it up to access it. And in this news, John, he's crying. And it's not just like little tears streaming down his face. This is an ugly cry, right? He's he's boo-hooing. Now, this time of the year, you go to Target, you go to wherever you go shopping, and, and the stores are filled with children who are melting down. Now, why do kids freak out like that in checkout lines? It's because they want something so badly. They see something and they have to have it. And then mom and dad, I don't know if it's wisely or, I mean, I don't know. You can be the judge of that. But they wait until they get to the checkout line to say no. And the reality sets in for them. I can't have this. And then, and then they erupt. Okay, John has one thing on his Christmas list here. He's got these deep longings for paradise that are are deep within his bones. Listen, and you do too. All creation groans for this promise of paradise to be fulfilled. Yet it's just beyond reach. Can you feel that? No wonder. No wonder he cries. Now, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the grieving, in the midst of the ugly cry, there's some good news. Finally, some good news finally emerges. Look at verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. See, this, this introduction once again roots us into the Old Testament. This is the prophecy that the Messiah, the promised deliverer, would come, and he would come from the line of Judah. He would be a descendant of King David. Now, with that introduction, when he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right, when, he, when he talks about David, David was a warrior. He was a a mighty warrior. And with that introduction, you're probably expecting to see something ferocious, something intimidating, something that just blows you away. But that's not the case. What John sees is a bit of a paradox. In verse six, he says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, a lamb, not a lion, I saw a lamb standing as as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
Now, John, what he's seen is not a roaring lion, not some mighty warrior coming to snatch the scroll out of the hand of God. What he sees is a lamb who has been slain. And make no mistake, friends, this lamb is Jesus. The New Testament declares it. When John the the baptizer sees Jesus approaching him to be baptized, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse Peter 1 says, Jesus is the lamb without blemish. He himself is the perfect and righteous lamb who was slain. That there was no evil in him. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Jesus is the victor. He defeated death by death because he triumphed in resurrection. See, Jesus approaches the throne and heaven erupts with even more worship. We saw worship last week in chapter four, even more worship. Things get very, very rowdy here in verses eight, actually to the end. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the the prayers of the sons. Now this is, again, sensory overload here. More and more, the volume's increasing. The elders are playing these harps. The senses are filled with the aroma of the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, look, this is John saying, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. He said, there's, there's a whole lot of angels here now. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and bless all of the promises that God has made for his people. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. Somebody else say amen. Come on. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you worship Jesus like this? Do you throw your hands up in worship? Do you belt a song of thanksgiving out for the one who is worthy? Is your heart, is your soul stoked with affections for him like this? Is Jesus the most glorious thing in the universe to you? Is Jesus the only one worthy of power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing? Is is Jesus your only hope? The only thing that you have left in this universe that you're banking on? Now that that might be the case for a couple hours here on Sunday mornings where we say yes, where, where we say amen. But what about the other 166 hours in a week? It's so, here's the thing. 
It's so easy for us to do one of two things. I think there's really two types of people in this world. There's, there's people who get caught up in trying to prove to God and to others that they're worthy of getting the promise that God has for them. They, they heap up their credentials trying to impress other people. Look at how religious I am. Look at how godly I am. There's this hunger to be good enough. Right? We'd even like a little bit of that praise to come our way. Right? A little bit. Just not all of it. Jesus can have 98% of it, but get, come on. 2%? I'm not asking for much. See, but when you live this way, you quickly fall into the category of becoming a religious weirdo. That, that you're so pious, that you're so good and righteous, and everybody else, you look down on them. Well, because they're just not quite as good. They're not quite as worthy as you. That's the first kind of people. The other kind of people... These are people who are far too cynical. Rather than being concerned with these promises that God has made, rather than hoping for these promises to materialize, we avoid the topic. We, we dismiss it. We're saying that there's no way that paradise is actually going to come back. The fall has been too far down. Right? And so if, if this is how it's going to be, why get our hopes up? And so we carry on in this world like cowards, people who are hopeless, too afraid to hope for something as tremendous as what God promises people, and therefore we're stuck in the dark just cowering. But seeing Jesus as the worthy lamb who is slain frees us from both of these spiritual black holes. It frees us from the life of cowering and hopelessness and trying to prove ourselves because, first of all, he is worthy, not me, not you. Jesus is worthy. And two, Jesus is victorious. He's triumphed over the darkness. The only way you look at Jesus this way the only way you can look at Jesus and say, look at the lamb who was slain and feel that this is good news is if you yourself understand that you aren't worthy nor are you capable of doing what Jesus does. And this is where the life of faith begins. This is where we shed the tendencies of self-reliance. And we depend on the perfect performance of Jesus Christ so that we could inherit paradise. It's where we look at Jesus fighting, not as a roaring lion, but the lamb who is slain, who defeats death by death. And in his death and in his resurrection, we get a new spine. We become courageous enough to believe that Jesus actually did what he set out to do. See, verse nine tells us this. When, when all of the elders are singing, when the, the creatures are singing, it tells us that Jesus went toe-to-toe with evil and he won. Jesus faced judgment for us so we wouldn't have to. See, that's, that's what they're saying when, when they sing, by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Now, don't be mistaken here. I think there's a lot of 
There's a misconception that when, when Jesus ransoms his people, that he's making payment to Satan, that, that he's making a, a payment uh, uh, for us to get out of hell. See, the, the payment, the ransom that Jesus makes is not to Satan. It is to appease the wrath of God on account of all of our sin and folly. See, Jesus allowed all of our sin to be placed on him, and because of that, he was a lamb that was slain for us. That Jesus fell on the sword that guards paradise so that we could now get in based on his righteousness. And the good news is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done in life. It doesn't matter how badly you don't measure up. See, we're told that Jesus is gathering ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, that's one of the reasons why we desire to be a multi-ethnic church here at Sacred City is because the kingdom of God, this paradise is gonna be like that. And God takes these ragamuffin people and by his grace, he transforms them into a kingdom, into to priests who reign with Jesus in paradise. See, the only way to lay hold of these promises, to inherit the paradise, is to confess that you aren't worthy. It's to move away from self-reliance and say, Jesus is worthy. That he gave me access. And when you do that, when your faith is in Jesus, then you become a rightful heir. Then you become a passionate worshiper. When you see him, you worship Friends, by the power of the gospel, darkness is being pushed back. Right now, real time, darkness is being pushed back and one day all of the darkness will be gone. And Christ will be seated on his throne at the center of the universe, the new paradise, the eternal paradise that will not be threatened, that is full of glory. Revelation 21 tells us that it'll be so bright that the glory of Jesus will be so bright there's no longer need for a sun. There's no trace of darkness, no stain of sin. Just God's people who have been ransomed by the blood of the lamb who have been made co-heirs and conquerors with Christ. Church, let us rejoice. Let us live in light of this every day of the week. Christ is sufficient. He is worthy. Father, we thank you for Jesus and being everything that we couldn't be. We thank you for the life that he lived, the perfect life, always in step with your will. We thank you that, that his ear, his heart for you was so much turned toward you that he was even willing to go to the cross like a lamb led to slaughter. And by this blood, we are a new people. As we come to the Lord's table today, Father, help us to know this, that this, this body of Christ is broken, the blood of Christ was shed for us, that we could be ransomed. And that the promise of paradise will one day be a reality for us. In fact, the next time, or, or I guess, the, the future that we see is us coming to the banquet table of, of the Lamb 
as his bride, as his people washed clean of their sin and rejoicing in triumph that evil has been defeated. Jesus is worthy. In his name we pray, amen.